This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, May the 13th. In just a few moments, longtime editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, best-selling author of more than 20 books, Frank Joseph, will be here and you will be gobsmacked. I love that word. <laughs> I try to drop it in whenever uh, the uh, the occasion arises, but uh, Frank Joseph will uh, drop some bombs, as he always does, uh, providing some compelling evidence of ancient immigrants, lost technologies, and places of power, the lost worlds of ancient America, his latest. He's standing by. And a little bit later in the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our world-renowned paranormal investigator, will be here to talk about entities that fight back as if we didn't have enough enough trouble now the things that not only they go bump in the night but uh, they're more, more more than likely to bop you on your head if uh, if they're so inclined all right uh hey happy mother's day uh, to all the mothers out there and uh, to my mother who uh, i um i don't see her as often as i should and and she lets me know that occasionally <laughs> anyway i um the whole family got together at a, uh, a club or a, a restaurant in West End, Toronto. And it was a brunch. And also, there was a salsa band there. Now, imagine, my, I mean, my mother never ceases to amaze me. She's, uh, she's 86, going to be 87 in June. And, uh, you know, she bowls and she occasionally she'll take a yoga class and uh, in much better shape than I am. Anyway, there she is. Uh, after brunch, out on the dance floor with uh, my three sisters and uh, nieces and so forth, taking a salsa lesson and uh, really putting everyone to shame. So uh, God bless her. And uh, Mom, you know I love you, so just keep on trucking. And also, of course, to the mighty Aphrodite, the mother of my two adorable uh, twin boys. Happy Mother's Day to you, and uh, you're all right too, kiddo. (laughs) She, She knows I like the kid. I love her. All right. Uh, listen, much of what we learned in uh, in in the school, uh, the, the the textbooks about the 
you know, the whole 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and, uh, you know, surprise, surprise to the uh, indigenous people. Uh, he proclaims that he discovered America and they're saying, hello, we're in the room. <laughs> but anyway, that's all, you know, it's pretty much all been uh, uh, established. That's been established, you know, that's just simply not the case. Christopher Columbus wasn't the first. As my next guest likes to say, he was probably the last and he's documented that, uh, as I say, in a number of books. And here he is with his latest, The Lost Worlds of Ancient America, the former editor-in-chief of Ancient American magazine, Frank Joseph. How are you, Frank? I'm just great, Richard. Thanks a lot for having me on. I, I always enjoy being on your show, only because I get a chance to listen to that great 40s music you always lead in. Ah, uh, yes, George Genescu, Big Band Sunday Night, who I just learned I should actually be referring to him as Doctor, but that's another tale for another time. He's on his way home. Stay awake, George, uh, and you won't have a problem staying awake with Frank Joseph. Well, Frank, I, I've told you this uh, many times, but I, if, if too long goes by before I have you on, back on the program, I hear about it from my listeners. I, I get more emails about Frank Joseph uh, probably than any other guest because, well, really, you, uh, it, this is a, how did you get into this? Uh, this field. How did you become editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine, first of all? Well, it, it helps if your friend is the publisher. <laughs> and so Wayne May was my friend for quite a few years. And we were both the avocational archaeologists interested in this uh, very bizarre place in southern Wisconsin called Rock Lake. And the archaeologists had told us that all these stories that the Native Americans had about a city of the dead lying at the bottom of this lake was just a bunch of fairy tales and that all the reports that uh, fishermen had since then about snagging their lines on these pyramidal structures, and they're like, ah, oh, that was all just a bunch of hogwash, uh, until we turned on our sonar down there, and we found, found some interesting structures and began finding them over the years. So he and I, we, we go back quite a few years before the magazine was founded in 93. I edited it from the beginning. He and I started it in 93, and by 2007, uh, I just was way too busy with so many other things like these books and so on that I, I couldn't do a, uh, a decent job anymore editing the magazine, which I still write for from time to time. But anyway, to answer your question, how I get started in this, it was a failure of my education. My education told me that for thousands and thousands of years, like for about 40,000 years, human beings lived a rather primitive, simple existence. And then, what do you know, folks? They just started to invent writing and pyramids and organized systems of government and irrigation overnight. They just started to do that. I thought, like, well, everything I know about human beings, that doesn't seem to make too much sense. No, this is the way it was. And um, so I began to question authority, which I guess is uh, you're not supposed to do, but uh, that led me on a completely different course. And I, I now believe, no, more than believe, I know that there is an entire underside to the textbook histories that we are given about the origins of civilization in North America. And that includes Canada as well. We're not talking only about the continental United States by any means. And so that really, I think, is the failure of my education to supply uh, credible, even rational, logical explanations of how we got here. Well, we're all thankful for your failure. We're all thankful for your failure, Frank. Listen, (laughs) can you even go into a museum, let's say, uh, I don't know the Smithsonian or or the uh, the you know the Museum of Ancient uh, or or um, uh, Natural History in in New York. Can you even go in there without saying you know walking by an exhibit saying, well, that's wrong. No, that didn't happen that way. <laughs> I mean, uh, can you go to a museum? 
Well, you know, I don't want to sound like Mr. Know-it-all because, good Lord, uh, I'm just a student. I don't presume that. And, and I have a great deal of deep respect for mainstream archaeologists. They do a lot of great work. And these museums, they do fabulous stuff. My only uh, criticism of these institutions is that they're very narrow, I believe, in their perception of these things. That they've done a fine job in studying all these great artifacts, but they're so close to the artifacts, they're so uh, myopic, that they don't see the larger picture. And thank God I'm not a professional archaeologist, because that's the way I'd have to think. I'm a reporter like you. I am a journalist. I have to step back. That's part of our job. You have to present the larger picture for average persons like ourselves to understand and appreciate. And scientists, they, they uh, take a much closer view of things. So I think that really the archaeology of the future is going to be a combination of the two, where you've got these great guys that do the close-up scientific work, but then you need us knuckleheads in the journalistic world that try to fit it all into a larger picture. But uh, before that can happen, uh, uh, Frank, and I hope it does, but before that can happen, I, I see that there's this old guard that the gatekeepers that are going to have to, uh, not to be too harsh, but sort of die off uh, or step aside and allow this new information to come through. Because what happens, as I see it, is you have, they have this established orthodox narrative. And if something comes along, let's say, for example, these uh, uh, homeowners in Los Angeles, and they're digging out a new basement, and, and it's featured in the book, uh, they unearth a 3,000-year-old Phoenician altar. Now, that doesn't fit the established narrative, so they're going to ignore it. They have to ignore that, don't they? They have to ignore it. Uh, I think that's what's really wrong with the system. They have to ignore it because if they accepted that, in fact, this is a Phoenician altar that was found in Los Angeles not too many years ago, uh, that would mean a total rewriting of the textbooks. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty serious because archaeologists and anthropologists, uh, you know, they're not uh, big buck guys. They don't make a lot of money. And their income mostly comes from the textbooks that they write and that they sell to year after year of their classes. And if somebody comes along and says, oh, no, uh, Professor, this is incorrect, <laughs> you're striking at their, their livelihood. So it's a kind of a bad system in that regard. But that's a, we open the book with, I think, one of, our, one of the most compelling and um, really unimpeachable finds that was made not too many years ago, I think about seven or eight years ago. It's an average home-owning family in Los Angeles, California. They were simply digging out their basement. I think they were going to put in a new water heater or something like that and wanted to just make it deeper in the basement. They were about maybe oh, uh, nine or ten feet down below the surface. And they come across this large cubic rock, very large, like a boulder. And they dig the thing out, of course, because they can't pr progress any further. And they find that it is obviously a piece of artwork, that this is a sculpted piece of stone that stands about four feet high, weighs several tons, has very peculiar designs on it. But what's really interesting is that there's a face carved on it. It's a face carved in bas-relief. And it's obviously of a woman, and she's wearing a kind of bouffant hairdo. So uh, Mr. and Mrs. Average Los Angeles, California, uh, took this thing to the Los Angeles Public Museum. And they were able to get it examined by the chief archaeologist and his assistants there. And they were honest, honest enough to tell them that this obviously is something that was carved and put in the ground 
um, far longer ago than 500 years ago. This is not anything recently done. This is no recent, uh, you know, something left over from a Hollywood movie or something. This is very old. They wouldn't go beyond that, though. They wouldn't say what it was. So in any case, we got photographs of this object, which were sent to us by the discoverers. These people refer, uh, re, re, uh, prefer rather to remain anonymous because they know what happens to people uh, that find things that uh, are contrary to the mainstream. Uh, they're they're re- regarded as uh, their reputations are, are savage. They're called fraudulent uh, people, people involved in fraud and so on. And this man is a professional. He can't afford that sort of thing. So we respect that. We don't have their their names, but we do reproduce the information. We do reproduce their, one of their photographs that shows this face on this stone. So our people got to work at Ancient American Magazine, and we figured, what on earth is this thing? Well, to make a long story short, we were able to determine without really too much trouble that this is, in fact, an altar which is known as a tophet. A tophet is a Phoenician sacrificial altar. The Phoenicians, for our uh, listeners are not entirely familiar with who these people were, they were like today's Lebanese. They're related very closely uh, genetically to today's Lebanese. They lived in the Near East, and they were fabulous mariners. These people were known to travel great distances. We know for a fact that 600 years before Christ, they made the first circumnavigation of Africa under Pharaoh Nekau. That's a matter of historical record. We know that they sailed as far as the Azor Islands, which is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, because Phoenician coins have been found um, in the uh, Azor Islands. But we never suspected that these people traveled as far as what is today Los Angeles, California, and set up a, uh, an altar, a tophet. The image that's portrayed on the altar is not only Phoenician workmanship. We know it's Phoenician workmanship because the Phoenicians had a kind of a fingerprint artistry they like to portray uh, people full face. That's rather unusual. The Greeks would, of course, carve people in the round, and the Egyptians carved people in a profile. But the Phoenicians like to, like to carve uh, representations of their goddesses and their gods and the people, kings and so forth, uh, full face on. And that's what this is. And the hairstyle, that is the giveaway. The hairstyle is unmistakably Phoenician, and it belongs to a goddess which was known as Ashtart, Ashtart, A-S-H-T-A-R-T. And Ashtart was known as the Queen of the Sea, which fits pretty well. She was the patron goddess of mariners. Excuse me, Frank, how long was this in the ground? How long was this thing in the ground? Do we have a date, approximate? We do. This object was in the ground between 1,000 and 2,000 years before Christ. It is 3,000 to 4,000 years old. Remarkable. We know that for two reasons. First of all, because of the depth at which it, is, it was found, and also because of the style of the hair and the representation of Ashtar. The representation is very similar to uh, the same kind of art style that's found that the Phoenicians did um, about between 1,000 and 2,000 years before Christ. This is the time when the Phoenicians were just breaking out of the Mediterranean, when they were freed from the uh, oppression of other uh, kingdoms that had fallen and allowed the Phoenicians to travel far. All right. Listen, I hear that music creeping up on me. All right. They made it to California. I'll say. And started Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The Phoenicians in Los Angeles. Unbelievable. Frank Joseph and the Lost Worlds of Ancient America back with more 
on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Entities that fight back coming up after midnight, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will discuss... A disturbing rise in incidents of demonic attacks. The stronger these entities are, she says, the more evil they are. They have a plan. And once they notice you, you are on their radar permanently. That's comforting, isn't it, on this Mother's Day? All right. Um, Frank Joseph is here. (laughs) The Lost Worlds of Ancient America. Now, Frank, we're all familiar, uh, particularly up here in Canada, about the the Viking settlers that established themselves in in Newfoundland, for example. Uh, But... You, you actually detail, uh, it's quite amazing that uh, there's a lot of evidence of, of Norse and other foreigners in prehistoric Canada that's far less acknowledged. Let's talk about the Hammer of Thor found in Quebec. Yes, isn't that cool? It was found in 1964 by a major archaeologist at the time. His name was Thomas E. Lee. And he was in, we're talking about now in northern Quebec, a rather uh, remote, desolate area. And he was just uh, researching um, Native American culture there when he came across unexpectedly uh, a very unusual object. is about 50 miles north of the village of Payne Bay, and it's near the west coast of Ungava Bay. What he found was a two-ton stone structure. It can be seen for many miles around. The area is rather flat. You can tell from the photograph that we have on page 65 of the Hammer of Thor. He called it the Hammer of Thor, interestingly enough that this uh, two-ton object is eight feet high. It measures 4.5 feet across at its pointed lintel. And it appears to be um, an indicator of some kind. It is indicating a, uh, a position of some kind. We don't know precisely what it was referring to. But it, the interesting thing about the Hammer of Thor, as Lee referred to it as, is that it is very similar to, similar st- to other structures that are found in uh, Greenland, and they go back to about to the 10th and 11th century. So it's believed that this was a, a marker that was set up by the Norse who arrived in northern Quebec and used it for some kind of a, an indicator of some kind. The evidence for Norse impact in Canada, Alansa Meadows and places like that, and all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States and up into Newfoundland and so forth, is just overwhelming. Uh, the Vinland map, which has now been authenticated by the Danes, as a matter of fact, by the Royal University of Copenhagen after a five-year study, indicates, that map indicates that the Norse were very familiar with the interior of North America as far as Lake Erie and the Susquehanna River in uh, the United States today. So there's no doubt that the Norse, you can call them the Vikings, these were people who continued to come over after the Viking Age from Scandinavia, uh, made a very powerful impact on American prehistory. And that impact is still carried forward in the spiritual uh, disciplines and views of Native American tribes all across Canada and the United States. And um, Can you give me an example of that? A marvelous proof that uh, our country, uh, both of our countries have been uh, influenced from their, their roots down by these overseas visitors. Can you give me an example of how the, the Norse 
uh, perhaps influence some of the spiritual traditions of the uh, the indigenous peoples of North America? Uh, in this way, uh, you will find commonly this. Uh, I don't believe. I don't know of a single Native American tribe that does not talk about uh, either white gods or white foreigners coming across the sea, and who. Uh, they're referred to as gods and sorcerers. For example, in the Ohio Valley, the Ojibwa Indians refer to them as the Yom Kodesh. And the Yom Kodesh means literally the red-haired giant sorcerers. Now, what's interesting about this is that when these foreigners arrived, this is according to Native American tradition, that when these foreigners arrived, there was not war, there was not oppression. Uh, that these foreigners arrived and had the great good sense, being terribly outnumbered by the native people, to try to get along with them. So uh, it's told that the Native Americans shared things like hides and furs, and that the the bringers of this technology from across the sea gave them like iron tools. Number of iron tools, foreign iron tools, have been found in Native American graves, and they and and they. Uh, shared their, their women and so forth, and uh, that's a genetic uh, contribution to some of the um, variation. You know, stop and think about this. Uh, we're told in school, uh, both in Canada and the United States, our textbook education, that all of the Native American tribes descended from Siberians who crossed over a land bridge Oh, only about 12,000 years ago. If that were true, I mean, just on the face of it, if that were true, then all Native American tribes, they'd all look like Siberians, right? They'd all look the same? Right, right. Oh, anybody that's familiar with Native Americans knows there is tremendous physical, cultural, and ethnic variance, physical diversion between one tribe and another. They do not all look the same. There is a tremendous uh, variation, and I think that this comes from Overseas visitors who, over the, uh, the millennia and the centuries, intermarried with these different various tribes and produced the different uh, qualities that we see in the Native American tribes today. I think that's a rather self-evident, self, self-obvious thing. One would think so, but, and, and, and again, a, a resistance by, I guess, the old guard, uh, Orthodox archaeology, that, that simply does not want to open this can of worms. And so I guess, you know, the next time we all go to a museum, we should really think uh, that or, or realize that maybe all the good stuff is still in the back, uh, t- nicely tucked away in crates. I don't know what you have well, to... There's no, doubt of, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. The number of things have gone missing. We talked uh, at the beginning about a Phoenician altar that was found in uh, Los Angeles, California. Another Phoenician altar was found in Chicago, literally in Chicago. It was on the Chicago River. It was found by early pioneers. It was known as the Wabansi Stone. And the Wabansi Stone was enshrined in the Chicago Historical Museum for a number of years. And after our magazine uh, and other newspapers, by the way, uh, discussed the obvious Phoenician character of this stone, which was also had a full face on it, had a bearded face, so it was not a woman, and it was a real tofet, another sacrificial altar. It disappeared into the basement of the Chicago Historical Society. And the last time I was there, I was told that it is no longer on display. I asked then if I could go and, and, and visit it and see it again, but I was assured, no, it was not necessary for me to see it, that it's a wonderful, wonderfully preserved 
and that I'd have to write to the director for special permission to come down and to see it. I mean, just uh, something that should be, I think, kind of available to everybody. You know, Chicagoans should know about their Phoenician heritage, but uh, no, that's been now uh, sequestered, and we have on good faith that it's in... Uh, it's uh, supposedly in uh, in uh, incredibly per- paternalistic, isn't it? It's it, I guess it really it, is. It would dis- I mean, it would rock our world is. to the core to know that the Phoenicians were here before Christopher Columbus, apparently. Well, <laughs> the thing is, and, and this really rings home after you've been involved in this as long as uh, Mr. Wayne May and myself have for the last twenty years, that history is politics, and archaeology is really politics. It's like the old uh, Orwellian principle, who controls the past com- controls the future, who controls the future controls the present, and that really is, is applied today. You talk about your conspiracy shows, well, these people that are in power, they can only survive because of conspiracy. A conspiracy is uh, a myth, is a general myth, a lying myth that is put out and to be accepted. Their, their existence depends on the general acceptance of this particular myth. And you see that, I think, throughout uh, Western society today, not just Canada or the United States. It's where the people in power, they don't dare, they can't afford uh, exposure, so they, they... Well, that's another show altogether, right. I suppose. But I think it was more... Uh, you really find in archaeology a, a very closed-minded mindset. Uh, 1492 is a line drawn in the sand. And they're not, uh, mainstream archaeologists, I can tell you, Richard, are not even interested in anything before 1492. If you came up with, and there, there have been numerous uh, investigators, uh, professional, university-trained people have come up with hard physical evidence that Columbus was not the first foreign visitor here, the mainstream just aren't interested. They won't even give it peer review. They don't care. The only thing they're interested in is from 1492 forward. Anything before that is of no significance. And we, it's, it, it is significant because f- at least four major civilizations rose and fell on our continent. And once you realize that, well, are we, do we have some kind of a special lease on life here? I mean, isn't there a great historical lesson that we should learn? I mean, if other high civilizations rose and fell here, thousands of years before Columbus, and we can prove it, uh, it should be known, but it's kind of a little too dangerous. It holds the mirror up a little too close to life, you know, because we have atomic bombs and refrigerators, we're supposed to just live on forever. But these other cultures, well, like the Adena, for example, they introduced agriculture. There was no agriculture in, in North America until it was introduced by these Celtic people from Western Europe, specifically the west coast of France, Normandy, Portugal, and England and Ireland, that introduced agriculture to North America 3,000 years ago. That was kind of important, right? Yet they lost it. Well, there you go. Maybe maybe Mark Twain was thinking of, about uh, archaeology when he said that uh, um, uh, the truth is easily killed, but a lie told well lives forever. We, you've been on the program before, Frank, and we've talked about the um, the copper mines on the shores of uh, Lake Superior, I believe. Yep. Uh, and uh, evidence that the Egyptians uh, came over, the Phoenicians again, and that and that this copper find. 
of this elaborate, huge uh, copper mine was really responsible. It fueled the Bronze Age in Europe because they didn't have enough copper in Europe to account for the Bronze Age, but it, but it happened here. But the other thing that, that it's, I find interesting, the ancient Egyptians, not only were they here for the copper, but now I'm learning in your book, The Lost Worlds of Ancient America, they came here for our corn. This is a wonderful brief article. It deals with the work of a, a university-trained professional archaeologist. His name is Dr. Gunnar Thompson. He's a Ph.D., and he's a maverick, though. He uh, has decided he's not going to go along and, and toe the consen- general consensus. And a two-year study of the bas-reliefs uh, at a temple in Upper Egypt convinced him, and I think they are, his, uh, rep- his article is, uh, is equally credible, that the Egyptians came specifically to North America for corn. And the reason why he is able to make such a statement is because this temple he's referring to was created by Queen Hatshepsut. She was a very enlightened monarch. She's one of the few queens in the uh, golden age of Egypt that really, that actually did wield political power. And this temple that she made, which you can visit today, it's a beautiful, very modern-looking structure, strikingly modern-looking, very clean lines, rather un-Egyptian in a way, um, although it goes back 1,500 years before Christ. It's 3,500 years old. It's in excellent condition. It's in the Upper Nile Valley. And on the walls of this temple are portrayed rep- uh, uh, pictures, as it were, representations of this great trading expedition that she launched and that she writes about. Now, it's all well-preserved. Okay, listen, Frank, they let me just jump walk- in. Sorry, Frank, let me jump in. The music's creeping up. Let's take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve into this uh, ancient Egyptian expedition to North America uh, for our corn. You see, uh, the the native people didn't give it to the pilgrims first. They gave it to the pharaoh. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show with Frank Joseph. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Again, Rosemary Ellen Guiley coming up uh, just after midnight to talk about entities that fight back. And also, we'll open up the phone lines around 12.30 for the last half hour of the program, and you can, dis- you can discuss just about anything you'd like, UFO, paranormal encounters, uh, political subterfuge, you name it. And uh, just a quick email here I want to share with you. Hi, I just want to say how much I enjoy the show, the highlight of my week here in, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this uh, village or, or town, but it's in Wales, here in, I'll spell it, E-B-B-W, Vale, Wales. Um, are there plans for the conspiracy show to be shown in the UK? Referring to the uh, the TV show, we're working on it, my friend. We are working on it. Uh, so uh, thank you for the lovely email. Frank Joseph is with us. The lost worlds of ancient America: compelling evidence of ancient immigrants, lost technologies, and places of power. Okay, so this um, a very well preserved. Um, uh, a temple, was it, in, in ancient Egypt, about 3,500 years old, depicting an expedition to North America. Right. It's the temple of Queen Hatshepsut. It's a major tourist stop for anybody that visits the Upper Nile. And Dr. Thompson noticed, as many visitors to this wonderful temple have seen, 
a portrayal of this expedition that was launched by Queen Hatshepsut, very well attested historically. And on one of the panels, it shows uh, several stevedores carrying trays. And on the trays, what appear to be North American corn or maize. He took numerous photographs of this particular panel and shared them with uh, paleobiologists. And they were able to determine without a shadow of a doubt or any hesitation that the maize that's portrayed in great detail on the uh, trays being carried by the stevedores is unquestionably the kind of corn that is raised only in North America. It's a, a breed of corn that is not found outside of North America. It's not only not in Egypt, it's not in North, North Africa, it's nowhere outside of North America. And here it is portrayed on this 3,500-year-old temple. So it is, it is absolutely clear that this expedition that was launched by Queen Hatshepsut 1,500 years B.C. was sent to North America specifically to bring back a type of food product that they did not have in ancient Egypt. We also know that the Egyptians came to Peru, and they Peru and Colombia for cocaine. Uh, we know that, and tobacco, because traces of tobacco were first noticed among some of the mummies back in 1977. When this was startling, because tobacco, of course, is not grown anywhere in the ancient old world, certainly not in Egypt or North Africa. And when the investigation of these tobacco-ridden mummies was discovered, dozens of them, the discoverers were amazed to find not only traces of tobacco, but also of cocaine, lots of cocaine. So that there are now several hundred mummies that are Egyptian mummies that are. Uh, imbued in the fabric with cocaine. The cocaine, by the way, the coca plant can only be grown in certain areas of Peru, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia. They they use cocaine. The Egyptians use cocaine not as a recreational drug or abuse or anything like that. The Egyptians use cocaine undoubtedly as a, uh, a part of their uh, medical practices. The Egyptians we know were incredibly successful brain surgeons. They had a between 80 and 90 percent success rate. We know that because of the uh, uh, mummies and the, the, the skulls that have survived that have shown um, uh, surgery, brain surgery, and that the, the vast majority of them, 80 to 90 percent, show healing after surgery. So as part of that, we presume, we speculate, that the cocaine was used uh, in order to help the uh, patient through this difficult process. Also, cocaine was probably used by the priests who used it for um, altered states of consciousness in their spiritual practices. But uh, these are speculations that it's not known for sure. But it is known for sure that the traces of cocaine and tobacco have been found in literally several hundred uh, mummies and are still being found. And uh, this how, is another... Um, yeah. how, how established were the ancient Egyptians in North America? Did they have permanent settlements here? Uh, that is a very interesting question. Unfortunately, it cannot be answered definitively. Some of the uh, pyramids that have been found in Peru, they now uh, these pyramids now are contemporary with the Pyramid Age in ancient Egypt. What's interesting about that is the Pyramid Age, which extended, uh, um, at least in the usual historical sense, from about 2800 B.C. to about uh, 2500 B.C., we now have pyramids that are found also in Peru. And what's interesting is that during the Egyptian pyramid age, most of the pyramids were step pyramids. They were not all, most of them were not like the Great Pyramid 
uh, smooth-sided. Most of them were staff pyramids, as now not. Well, as it turns out, the majority, not the majority, all of the pyramids found in Peru at the same period of time are also step pyramids. So I would say yes, that there was a permanent settlement here. The difference between settlement in the ancient times and in more recent times is that it appears that the ancients had enough good sense to try to get along with the native population, to, in, to invite the native population to participate in this high culture. How different this is from uh, when, the, when uh, in the more modern times when the Christians arrived, uh, like in Peru and Mexico, with only the idea of uh, conquering and forcing the people to abandon uh, their culture, to demonize their culture, and to force them to uh, become loyal servants of the crown and, and uh, of the uh, of the church, and and that's when it led to all the, the difficulties that we're still suffering today. But the ancient world, apparently, ancient uh, settlers, colonizers, had a more uh, elevated view. Could could the the legend of Quetzalcoatl uh, have come from Egypt then? And we're talking about the sort of the uh, the influence of the ancient Egyptians on the the uh, the Olmecs or the Incas and the Mayans. Well, I would say no to that because Quetzalcoatl's legend uh, refers to an island that uh, figures into the. You're partially right in this. Uh, Quetzalcoatl is, is the feathered serpent to the Aztecs. Before the Aztecs, they knew him as Kukulkan. Means the same thing. The feathered serpent. He was known as Zacamac to uh, numerous other uh, peoples in Mexico. Means also the same thing. The feathered serpent. Itzamna to the uh, another that Itzamaya and so on. He is always referred to as a person who arrives after some terrible catastrophe that destroys his homeland. And that is the reason why he has arrived on the shores, the eastern shores of Mexico. But here's the interesting link. That I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, between Mexico, ancient Mexico, and ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians, and this is according to Manetho, who is their great historian. He lived about 2,300 years ago. He was a great collector, or uh, sort of like encyclopedist, who brought together all the Egyptian uh, myths and their, their foundation stories. And in his, uh, his surviving work, Manetho's surviving work, he tells of a place called Sechret Aru, which means the island of reeds. And the reason why is because the reed was uh, used as an ink pen in ancient Egypt. It was a stiff reed, you'd, a stiff plant, you'd break it off, at a sharp point, and you'd dip it in ink, and you had a, an ink pen. So if you have a field of reeds, it refers to a place of great literacy, great learning, great wisdom, high technology. And according to Manetho, the origins of Egyptian civilization go back to Sekhret Aru, this island which is in the Atlantic Ocean. They say it's beyond the Twelfth Bow. And Sekhret reads, um, underwent some kind of a natural catastrophe. Its survivors came to the Delta, Nile Delta, where they um, gave the gift of high civilization to the native peoples there, and the hybrid civilization grew, and that is the Egyptian civilization. Okay, that's the field of reeds story from Manetho. On the other side of the world, the Aztecs told the Spaniards that their civilization came from Quetzalcoatl, to be sure, and Quetzalcoatl came also from an island. And the island they refer to is Aztlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N. 
and he arrived with the high gift of his technology. Well, interestingly enough, Atslan translates in the Aztec language, known as Tenoche, as field of reeds, mm. the exact same name that the ancient Egyptians gave to the cultural homeland of their own civilization, and that the reed was used by the Aztecs in precisely the same way that it was used by the ancient Egyptians. It's a stiff plant, you break it off and you have an ink pen. It meant exactly the same thing. So here you have two different peoples on opposite sides of the world telling the same story, not only the same story, but that their culture bearer comes from the exact same place, the field of reeds. So that definitely shows a connection between the two peoples. That's what we do on this program, Connect the Dots, and uh, Frank Joseph here is here just to do that. The Lost Worlds of Ancient America. And uh, you know, back to the Middle East, we talked about uh, uh, the ancient Egyptians. The Libyans, the Libyans, Frank, in Kentucky, this is absolutely remarkable. It is. It, it, seems, it seems remarkable to the point of being ridiculous. I mean, Libyans in Kentucky? But consider this. First of all, these people are great seafarers. They arrive across the Atlantic Ocean. Well, why not? I mean, a, a people that are great enough to build the Great Pyramid, a building that cannot be reproduced today, uh, a far lesser achievement would be to make a boat that could go across the Atlantic Ocean. But in any case, they came here. They crossed the ocean. They are still great mariners. And the river systems, we now know that the river systems of North America were far more navigable a thousand, even a thousand years ago than they are today that were far more profuse. So here you have these great navigators who are able to arrive on the shores of North America, then proceed inland through the great waterways that are available to them. So getting to Kentucky is not really as fabulous as it might seem. What we're referring to specifically is to a uh, set of very unusual-looking hieroglyphs that puzzled uh, the people that lived in this particular area in Kentucky for some years until the plantation owner, or the landowner on which these these uh, hieroglyphs appeared, finally shared them with uh, Dr. Barry Fell. Dr. Barry Fell has passed away now. He's been dead for about 20 years. Dr. Barry Fell was a zoologist. He was not uh, an epigrapher, he, but he was university trained. See, this is one of the criticisms that we get. Oh, Dr. Barry Fell, what does he know about epigraphy? Uh, he was just a zoologist. Well, the thing is, if you have a university training, that gives you a base for a lot of other disciplines, right? Especially if you have been uh, very successful in undertaking your own scientific uh, endeavors. And so Dr. Barry Fell became quite an excellent epigrapher, as it turns out, and he was able to translate uh, this inscription in Kentucky that really relates to a, it's a solstice marker. It's an astronomical marker. Apparently it wasn't particularly important to the Libyans that arrived here. The Libyans, of course, were a people that lived in North Africa. They're very, they were very closely related to the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians colonized North Africa. There's no uh, doubt, there's no uh, contention about that. They were, the Phoenicians were great colonizers. They've created the Carthaginian Empire, and they also uh, were very much into astronomy, especially solar astronomy. So here we have in Kentucky a, a mark from about 125 A.D., or I believe it's later than that, maybe it's the 3rd century A.D., but still, we're talking long before Columbus, uh, it indicates that these ancient civilizers traveled as far inland as Kentucky. 
and set up uh, an astronomical um, alignment or orientation that is uh, still visible today. Remarkable. And and, and staying with, well, uh, listen, we'll take a, a timeout. When we come back, I, I want to talk about um, uh, the Hebrews in North America. This is remarkable as well. It's all remarkable. And before we say goodnight, we must get to this. Prehistoric aviators of the Andes, all in, in, in uh, chapter and verse in The Lost Worlds of Ancient America, Compelling Evidence of Ancient Immigrants, Lost Technologies and Places of Power. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, all one word. Let me spell it, Richard, R-I-C-H-A-R-D, and Serrett, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett. Right now, Frank Joseph stays with us for a few moments, uh, just ahead of Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking about entities that fight back. And then around 12.30 a.m. Eastern, we'll open up the phone lines and uh, you can get it said. Now, let's uh, let's talk about uh, a, a rather remarkable discovery. And this was in Tennessee, a Smithsonian archaeologist, of all people, discovers uh, a stone emblazoned with a second-century Hebrew inscription. Got to find out more about this, Frank Joseph. Right. In 1898, um, a number of so-called Indian burial mounds in eastern Tennessee were being excavated. It was no big deal by the Smithsonian Institution, and one of their university-trained archaeologists opened one of the burial mounds, found a number of skeletons, and under the skull of one of the uh, interred um, uh, skeletons, the archaeologists found uh, an inscribed tablet. Now, that's highly unusual because Native Americans were not known to use a written language of any kind and didn't have any inscribed uh, material. And the um, inscription was regarded as an intru- something intrusive. In other words, it had been carved by somebody sometime much later and had just been pushed in there somehow, although there was no evidence for that whatsoever. Absolutely none. And uh, so the Smithsonian wasn't particularly interested in it. They could not identify the writing on it. They had no idea what it was. They took a photograph of it, and they publicized this photograph, and they put the stone on display for a while as a kind of a curiosity. It attracted a great deal of attention, because um, mostly from amateurs, outsiders, who thought, well, what on earth is this? Is an inscribed tablet on an Indian mound? What does this mean? And... It wasn't really until the end of the 20th century, in other words, uh, almost a hundred years later, that a very great woman, um, Henrietta Mertz, who was uh, working, who had been at work with the uh, uh, anti, with the code-breaking services in World War II with the U.S. Um, government, noticed this, a photograph of the stone. It was known as the Bat Creek Stone because it was found next to this little river called Bat Creek in eastern Tennessee, as I say, and she thought that the, the writing looked uh, Hebrew. It might be Hebrew. 
but she didn't know. So she took the photograph, was able to take the photograph of the Back Creek Stone, and showed it to um, Professor Cyrus Gordon. Professor Gordon was the leading Semeticist in the world at this time. He was uh, at uh, Brandeis uh, University in New York City. He was literally regarded as the doyen of um, studies of Semitic languages, Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo-Hebrew differs from today's Hebrew uh, not that significantly, although you can trace it back to about the time of ancient Rome and a little bit earlier. He looked at the uh, inscription from the Back Creek Stone and said there's no doubt that this is a Paleo-Hebrew inscription from the 2nd century A.D., probably around 125 A.D., and the inscription reads literally, For Judea. It doesn't, we believe that the inscription is only a part of a larger one that's since been lost, but what can be read, it says, For Judea. When uh, Dr. Gordon made this statement, he thought, it was, he thought this was something very important, needs to be gotten out to the public, he was savaged by his colleagues, uh, who referred to him as a rogue professor. They questioned his sanity. Now, here's a man who is like a world-class scholar, and yet uh, for the rest of his life they condemned him because he dared to come out and say that it's, it would appear that this is a legitimate artifact. So it was quite controversial throughout the rest of the 20th century until the year 2007. In that year, the Back Creek Stone um, was actually presented to um, a, a fellow by the name of Scott Walter. Scott Walter is a university-trained geologist. Not only that, he's the president of an award-winning geological laboratory in St. Paul, Minnesota. So if anybody would uh, examine this stone to determine its, uh, its provenance, uh, this is, would be the man to do it. Scott Walter had no interest in the archaeological aspects of this or controversy surrounding this artifact. He knew nothing about it at all. After about two months at his laboratory, non-invasive um, testing with an electron microscope and other state-of-the-art equipment, uh, his report was issued, and we uh, published his report in the magazine, and, and the copy is in our book. And his his conclusion is that this stone could have only been buried about 2,000 years ago, that the mineralization that has taken place not only on the stone itself but inside the inscription indicates that it was in fact carved sometime a little less than 2,000 years ago. He speculates that sometime in the early 2nd century A.D. Now that's remarkable because Professor Gordon, just on the linguistics alone, determined that it was in the early second century A.D., about 125, that the stone had been carved. So here we have both a leading Paleo-Hebrew linguist, plus we have a university-trained geologist at his own laboratory, an award-winning laboratory on top of it, indicating that this is beyond a shadow of a doubt now, was carved by someone who understood Paleo-Hebrew. The stone itself is dated to a time when the Hebrews were, of course, subject to imperial Rome, and is found in eastern Tennessee. It is something so powerful in itself that it is enough to demolish the textbooks. And yet, um, Scott Walter's work has not been subject to peer review. They're not interested in it. When his statement was published in Ancient American, the response from mainstream archaeologists was silence. And, and this, they, I'm... They this... Would this is just the tip of the iceberg, I'm guessing. I mean, what, what else is just lying beneath the surface 
uh, that would de- totally destroy, you know, the textbooks and 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 the tenure of dozens and dozens of of uh, uh, of professors, hundreds of professors, and so forth. What we tried to do in the uh, first section of our book was to present what we feel is some of the strongest physical evidence. And as you say, Richard, any one of these things is enough to literally demolish the governing paradigm that our young people are still taught in schools. The Back Creek Stone is an unimpeachable artifact now. There is no doubt surrounding it. There is no controversy. There is no theory. It has been subjected to hard science, not just an interpretive archaeological science. It has been subjected to geologic testing and that the Bad Creek Stone now joins the literally hundreds, hundreds of other Hebrew artifacts that have been found across North America, including Canada, not as as much as in the United States, but there have been some numerous Hebrew coins that have been dated to this exact same period, the early 2nd century A.D. It would appear that at that time, a number of Hebrews who were uh, Jewish people who were uh, having difficult times with ancient Rome, uh, decided that they would take their fate in their hands and try a, a transatlantic voyage, and they made it here. And we're not just talking about a few castaways. These coins have been found all across the United States, but the Back Creek Stone uh, ties them all together and gives them a, a great deal of profound significance. And that's why we showcased the Back Creek Stone, uh, along with other hard evidence like the uh, Phoenician altar. That's about. America, we have to understand, has been a melting pot long before the Statue of Liberty was, elect- was erected in New York Harbor, because America has always offered a great deal, not only in terms of corn and minerals and so forth, but also as places of refuge. And that is why, that's why they came here. But it's a, it's a huge story. It's our Well, it ought heritage. to be. It certainly ought to be. Well, then the, these... It's our heritage, it's our legacy, but it, we are cut off from it. We're not allowed to, to know about it. Up until now, uh, thanks to you in large part, Frank. Now, these Hebrew coins, is there... Try to maybe connect some more dots for us. Is there... You were talking earlier about the, the spiritual influences of the Norse, uh, Nor- spiritual and cultural influence of the Norse uh, on the indigenous people. Of, uh, although, when we use the word indigenous, now we have to rethink that as well. But w- what about the Hebrews uh, and, and, and uh, Judaism? W- did they exert an influence on those that were here before? Uh, I would say the best answer to that is to make a study of the Cherokee Indians specifically. The Cherokee often talk about, and in their, in their spirituality, they have many points in common with ancient Hebrew beliefs. And one of the most remarkable of all, we haven't got time to go into all of them, but I, just to give you one example, is that the Cherokee, before, Native, before the first modern uh, visitors came, uh, in, uh, modern Europeans, knew and talked about the Ark of the Covenant. According to the Cherokee belief, they believe that there is a, a sacred vessel uh, which is described exactly the same as in the book of Moses in the Old Testament, and that this is a special, it means a special relationship between the Cherokee people and God. What's particularly interesting also is that the Cherokee, they talk about their supreme being as being yod heh hmm. yod heh is, if you is exactly the way that Yahweh was, pronu- was pronounced 
in Paleo-Hebrew language. So here you have the Cherokee, who not only know about the Ark of the Covenant, but they also pronounce the name of their chief god, Yotevah, in precisely the same way that uh, Paleo-Hebrew pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh is a, a modern Hebrew uh, pronunciation. If you go back to ancient Rome, it was referred to as Yotevah, which is the same way that the uh, Cherokee still refer to their supreme being. It, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, amazing that the establishment has not uh, admitted any of these things, uh, which have been known to avocational archaeologists, but not published until our books and our magazines came along. And now we're, we're getting this information out there. Remarkable. And, and you mentioned the ancient Romans. And uh, this, uh, I, I guess I, I shouldn't be uh, shocked by anything uh, anymore after uh, reading your, your work, Frank, but that is the influence of the ancient Romans in South America. Were they, did they reach Peru? Uh, the the Roman impact on both South America and North America is, is very powerful. And uh, Peru, uh, one of the interesting artifacts that we showcase is uh, a little vessel that's at the St. Louis Museum in uh, Missouri, which shows a what is known as a were fox. In other words, it's a man who's uh, transforming himself into a fox, just as there was the werewolf, there was the were fox, and on this little jar, the werefox has a kind of a shield, and the shield has on it a swastika. It's not the swastika that we're familiar with from uh, uh, from uh, 70 years ago. This is a, what we refer to as a backwards swastika. In ancient Rome, it was referred to as, well, not in ancient Rome, ancient India, excuse me, it was referred to as a sawastika. There was the swastika is leftward oriented, the sawastika is rightward oriented. The difference between the two is that these symbols have always been used, applied to the sun and the moon. The swastika is a solar symbol. It's always been a solar symbol. That's the leftward oriented. And the rightward oriented, sawastika, is associated with the sister of the sun, which is the moon, lunar energy. In ancient Rome, the sawastika was used uh, for the goddess Diana and her followers. Her followers were uh, foxes. They would transform themselves into the energies of the fox. The salwastika appears also on this were-fox um, jar that's found in Peru. That's also dated, by the way, to Imperial Roman times, to about the 1st or 2nd century A.D. So it's a unique symbol. It's a fingerprint or a diagnostic symbol that's associated with ancient Rome, and we're finding it here in Peru. So it's a we have a photograph of that as well. Unbelievable. All right, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I do want to get to these ancient aviators of the Andes. You ain't heard nothing yet, folks. Frank Joseph, The Lost Worlds of Ancient America. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Just a few moments remain uh, with uh, Frank Joseph and uh, we'll try to squeeze in a call or two as well before we say goodnight to him. And just ahead again of uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, world-renowned paranormal investigator talking about entities that fight back. And in the final stages of the program, open lines. All right, Frank, uh, we've got to get to this. Ancient aviators of the Andes. What do you mean by ancient aviators? Well, I'll make this really quick. Uh, most people believe that the Wright brothers were the first to fly. Well, they were the first to fly uh, heavier than air aircraft, and they were preceded by the uh, Montgolfier brothers, Jacques and Joseph. About 1790, they flew the first hot air balloon. That's uh, what we're told in history. But in fact, uh, I was able to find out that the very first person to fly was a fellow by the name of Guzman. That he was a Pol- that he was a Portuguese missionary to Brazil, and on August eighth, seventeen o nine, according to Vatican records, he flew a hot air balloon uh, before King João the fifth of Portugal and his court. It's a matter of historical record, and as a matter of fact, it's it's really is understood um, by aviation enthusiasts, but uh, probably not many people beyond them. Well, anyway, Guzman, who was this uh, the very first man to fly a hot air balloon learned how to build a hot air balloon from natives in Brazil uh, that he was um, trying to convert to Christianity. And uh, he he, uh, was able to go far up the Amazon, and he found that these very primitive people, uh, nonetheless, were able to make aerostats. Aerostats are hot air balloon models. You know, just they made them out of paper, and they put little fire pots underneath them, and they flew. Uh, they wouldn't carry anybody, but these uh, native peoples told Father Gushman that long ago uh, these foreigners uh, and these very powerful individuals came uh, and they showed them how to to get in these things and fly them. And um, there was a, a fellow back in 1997. Now we're jumping all the way from the early part of the uh, 18th century to to the 20th century, his name was James Woodman, and he was a balloonist, and he found out about Father Gushman, and he was intrigued by something called the Nazca Lines. Now, some of our listeners may be familiar with these. It's the largest outdoor art gallery in the world. It was carved in the sands of the Peruvian desert long before the Incas even arose. Nobody knows exactly who made them. But they go back about 2,000 or more years ago, archaeologists think. But in any case, you cannot make these uh, lines out from the ground. I know, I've been there. I've been to Nazca several times, and these wonderful drawings, uh, if you're standing uh, on the ground level, they appear to be nothing at all. As a matter of fact, they were only discovered in 1930 by the very first uh, person to own an aircraft in Peru. He happened to fly over them and look down and saw these marvelous uh, drawings of spiders and whales and frigate birds and all kinds of uh, geometric designs, and dozens of them extending over hundreds of miles. And um, so James Woodman, this balloonist, after having heard about Father Gushman and learning the ballooning technology, the hot air ballooning technology from these Brazilian natives, speculated that the pre-Inca people who made these drawings uh, did so 
so they could see them properly from the air. And they had hot air balloons. And so what uh, James Woodman did is he created one of these Brazilian aerostats using no modern tools or materials whatsoever. And as an experiment, uh, wanted to see if such a, a craft would actually fly. It did fly very well, 1997. And he was able to also find next to these great drawings, these line drawings, burned areas strangely burned areas, like campfires, but similar to campfires, but more intense and larger. And they went back to the time when these lines were being drawn. So he speculates. There's no proof of any of this, but it's marvelous to consider. Uh, but he speculates that the ancient pre-Inca people of Peru mastered hot air ballooning, specifically so they could see these this magnificent panorama before them. And I think our article... Uh, which I uh, uh, had the privilege to be able to write up, presents this evidence in a way that I, I think uh, tends to indicate that the ancients did, in fact, have hot air balloons at their disposal, and that I think that they did master flight a limited way and uh, was lost with the fall of their civilization. Remarkable. Let's uh, squeeze in a quick call before we say goodnight to Frank Joseph. Michael's in Burlington. Good morning, Michael. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I've been listening with, uh, with with great pleasure to your guest, Frank. I guess uh, probably the, 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 my greatest interest is I am a, a descendant of the Norsemen. And uh, the thing that is, has always gotten me is what was the demise, what happened? And, and I've also listened to some Icelandic culture that speaks of that being a, a midpoint in their journey, coming to... Uh, you know, the eastern eastern seaboard of the United States and uh, to areas like Newfoundland, and I've I've watched documentaries on this where they show evidence of the uh, the Vikings actually living and thriving in in the area of Newfoundland, which is close to the coast of the ocean. Does your guest Frank have any idea? Because I've always wondered, and I truly believe that that, that they were the, the the first people in this country. Or now he suggests otherwise, which is very very interesting too. But the Norsemen, does he have an idea what was their demise? Well, there's two wonderful points that the caller brings up. Um, I don't believe that the the Vikings were the first, but it would appear that the earliest. Uh, Overseas visitors to North America, specifically to Canada, were people from Scandinavia. We now know that these people were far more uh, capable seafarers than ever known before, and that these voyages took place an amazing 18,000 years ago. I have a new book uh, coming out later next year. Hopefully we can discuss that at some time, in which I'm able to trace uh, these wonderful seafarers that uh, were able, were are now known as the Maritime Archaic. They're known up and down the eastern seaboard of Canada, and that their their connection to Denmark and to Norway is unmistakable, and that they were visiting North America about 18,000 years ago. This was long before word. the Vikings arose. But why the Viking culture declined, it wasn't obliterated. What happened was is that when the men were on long voyages, uh, when they went a Viking, as was said, uh, we're now talking about the 10th and 11th to 12th centuries A.D. The women at home were discontent, and they were ripe for change. Uh, a number of Christian missionaries 
uh, Christianized the Norse women with the idea that by becoming uh, followers of Jesus uh, and the church specifically, uh, they now preached peace and that you didn't uh, go on these uh, dynamic raids anymore, that it was sinful to do, the gods were demonized, uh, the Viking expeditions were regarded as unchristian, and as a consequence, the Vikings uh, internalized, and their civilization kind of imploded, became more and more uh, pacified, as it were, and lost its uh, dynamic. That happened around beginning of really around uh, 1200 A.D. Excellent. Michael in Burlington, thanks for the call. We'll squeeze in one more. Carmen's in Toronto. Good morning, Carmen. Your question for Frank Joseph. Uh, yes, uh, uh, two quick ones. Um, uh, Buckminster Fuller uh, uh, said that the Venetians uh, were actually derived from, uh, the word Venice is actually derived from uh, Venus, uh, a Phoenician, the Phoenician city. And its influence in world affairs is because of the great Phoenician, uh, uh, um, the things you have been talking, absolutely fascinating stuff that you've been saying. Uh, well, your comment on that, uh, whether Venice is, is actually just a branch of the Phoenician... Uh, a branch of the Venetian what, Carmen? Uh, well, Phoenician culture. Well, you know, that the caller brings up a really something fascinating I've never considered before, but I think that is completely credible. I, will, I would definitely go along with it. The name Venetian comes from a Celtic people known as the Venetii, and the Venetii were known as being uh, great mariners. As a matter of fact, uh, the Venetii fought Julius Caesar and had ships that were greater than his, he won only because of his military genius, but not because his ships were better than the Venetii. And, and Venice and the people of Venice trace their lineage back to the, these Celtic seafarers. I can definitely see a heritage going on with the Phoenicians. That, and the, the name, is, it, does, it is intriguing, is it not? Uh, Venice, Venetians, Phoenicians. Yeah, there, is, there does appear to be some kind of relationship. And I'm very grateful to the caller for bringing it up. It's something that I need to, to look into. All right, Carmen, thank you for the call. And Frank Joseph, wow, thank you for uh, the lost worlds of ancient America, compelling evidence of ancient Im immigrants, lost technologies, and places of power. So you've got uh, your heart at work on another book. I look forward to, uh, uh, to reading that and getting you back on the program. And uh, continued success, Frank. Thank you very much, Richard. I hope we can do it again. And again, and again, and again, uh, my, my listeners demand it, and uh, I always look forward to it, Frank. Give my very best to Mary Ellen. All right. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will discuss something rather disturbing, to say the least, entities that fight back. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show from Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas. Glad to have you aboard. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Reports that there are increasing incidents 
of demonic attacks against individuals. We're about to launch into a discussion of entities that fight back. How does that grab you? Let's hope one doesn't grab you. Uh, but here to explain more is our resident, world-renowned paranormal investigator. She joins us the second Sunday of every month. She is the author of over 40 books, including major encyclopedic works. And uh, uh, one of her latest books is The Vengeful Jinn. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm busy, as usual, Richard. I'm off on my spring lecturing and research. And uh, as our topic for this month states, I'm seeing an increasing number of negative entity contact and haunting cases where the uh, the problem entities uh, resist leaving and fight back pretty hard. Is, th- is this a, a, a new development when we're talking about uh, entities that will actually resist being, uh, let's say, uh, removed or cleansed from a location and they're actually striking out, lashing out? Is this new? It's not entirely new, because throughout history we've had cases of possession, where the entities who, who take over a person mentally and physically are often hard to drive out. But the new twists in these cases concern what most people might think are just kind of unusual hauntings that should be cleared, and they aren't cleared, because whatever it is that's lodged in place doesn't want to go, and uh, they don't seem to be hesitant about retaliating against the people who try and get them to go. How are they retaliating? What are you hearing, Rosemary? Well, for example, uh, myself and a lot of other investigators get calls from people who say that they are being bothered, even tormented, by unseen negative presences in their homes. And some of these cases involve people who move into um, a new home, uh, it may be an existing home, like not brand new, and after they move in, they are afflicted. Other people seem to have attachments that have been going on for uh, many years in their lives, and the attachments become increasingly problematic over time. It's like the entities are getting bolder and bolder. So these people have things like nightmares, uh, even physical assaults where they might get pinched and bruised, suffer even unexplained cuts. They have um, mental oppression, poltergeist effects in their homes. They see dark, ugly forms, shadow people. They might even have um, sexual assaults by invisible entities. A lot of these things are naturally very unpleasant. And so they call people to come in and try and cleanse the premises, you know, get the entities to go. It's a kind of exorcism. Uh, and uh, now in many cases, in a milder haunting, it's, it's um, a very straightforward uh, way to uh, cleanse an environment and, and clear something unwanted that's out, like a, you know, a low-level kind of ghost. But in many cases, these entities seem to be very determined to stay. And not only do they manage to hang on, they act like angry wasps whose nests have been invaded, and they sting back, and sometimes quite violently. They can cause serious health issues for both the investigators and uh, the original victims. They can cause things like car accidents. I've seen that on a number of occasions. 
They can ruin people's finances. They can uh, create psychological distress and disturbance that just makes it unpleasant to live in a place. What's and causing sometimes this? Sometimes people wind up just getting out. What, what's causing this? Why is this ramping up so dramatically? I think there are a number of factors. Uh, I, these entities, uh, they're not new on the scene. They've been around. I think they've been around on the planet uh, as long as we have, maybe even longer. But they are getting bolder. And part of that is uh, we're pushing into more and more remote areas where a lot of these entities have had free reign in relatively undisturbed uh, places. And uh, it's like we've invaded their homeland. In fact, they have what I call our land rights. And that seems to be a peculiar condition whereby space on the Earth has an interdimensional sharing. It's, uh, it's like there are parallel dimensions stacked one on top of another, and they're all really anchored into the, uh, into the planet. And we may not be the only persons using uh, places on the planet. There are other entities and other dimensions who come and go. And some of them say, uh, when they communicate, that they've been in places longer than we have, and we're the squatters and invaders on their territory. So that's an increase. Then we have the influence of television and films, which unfortunately has skewed things in a very negative way. Uh, the shows that started out to show uh, just kind of routine, entertaining ghost hunting in order to keep their audiences interested have gotten uh, more and more demonic in nature. So they're conditioning people to think in terms of the demonic, and people interpret cases that way. And as a consequence, some people are experimenting more with the paranormal. They think it might be fun to go out and, and have encounters with entities. So they, um, they participate in um, investigations in haunted places. They taunt the entities. Um, they throw themselves wide open to, um, to contact. And then they bring something home with them that manages to lodge in place. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. A world-renowned paranormal investigator, author of *The Vengeful Jinn* and *Talking to the Dead*. Rosemary, you, you, when you mentioned, you know that we are uh, encroaching on their territory. It's, it's interesting. It reminds me. A couple of days ago, I actually had a, a telephone conversation with a man in Alberta who had survived a grizzly bear attack, and he was talking in those terms. You know, he, he blamed himself for the attack. He said, "I was encroaching in." her, referring to Mama Bear, Grizzly Bear, who was protecting her cubs, I was encroaching in her living room, and I didn't behave properly. So, I mean, what, what exactly, how are we encroaching on their territory? I mean, we've, you know, humankind has basically spread out across the planet. Are you talking about, uh, uh, you know, building houses in locations where there wasn't, where, where there weren't humans before? What do you mean by encroaching on their territory? Sometimes simply putting up a structure seems to invade their territory. And we find precedents for, for this in fairy lore that goes back centuries. Our ancestors viewed the fairies as very dangerous entities if they were upset and angered. And um, people centuries ago knew very well that uh, the fairies had certain land rights. There were areas that that uh, they claimed to be theirs, and human beings took a great risk to invade that territory. So you did not build a house 
or even build a road through that area because the fairies would retaliate by bringing rack and ruin upon you. So we're seeing similar cases like that today, and I have also found them associated with gin cases, supernatural entities who, uh, in many respects, bear a lot of similarities to tormenting and possessing demons and to uh, vengeful and wrathful fairies. There are also cases where entities seem to be very upset when their favorite um, trees and vegetation are cut down for land clearing and building. Uh, again, precedents going back centuries with fairy cases. Fairies had favorite trees. The jinn seem to have favorite trees, and they get very angry when human beings cut them down. Um, it sounds, like, it sounds uh, like you're also talking... I like the sound of a lot of our machinery and mm -hmm. our uh, electric... They don't like the interference from our uh, electrical um, uh, wires and outlets, um, our equipment and machines that generate electromagnetic fields of energy seem to be very disruptive to them in a, um, even a, a harmful way to their entity health, so to speak. Uh, those seem to be the dominant complaints so far, and some of them also just don't seem to have a very high regard for human beings, the same way we might not want to be around um, a lot of animals in the woodland. You know, we, we clear out uh, animals and insects and things like that when uh, we establish our presence. We think we have eminent domain, and now we're finding out that uh, we don't always uh, have that right to be the sole occupants of a place. So what do you propose we do, Rosemary? Do we try and figure out a way to coexist, or do we... I mean, is this out... Is this basically declared spiritual warfare, and it's it's time to consult the good book and, and uh, take this these entities head-on? Taking them head-on may be problematic, because sometimes... Uh, people who do that wind up uh, very battered, just like that grizzly bear case you were talking about. And in fact, uh, with one case I was consulting on, that's how I likened it. I said it's like getting swatted by a grizzly bear. You're just flattened uh, without warning and before you even know it. That's how swift some of these entities can retaliate. So in some cases, people get worn out. They try to appease the entity. They try uh, and exercise it, um, trying all manner of, of folk and religious remedies. Um, there are lots of remedies to get rid of entities, and all of them are successful some of the time, but not all of the time. And uh, they try to ignore the entity, and sometimes their mental and, and physical health are just worn down to the point where they get out. Uh, and in other cases, we seem to be able to um, to push the entity out or at least get it to uh, go down to, to a, such a low level of activity that it's uh, not a major problem. It's just kind of in the background acting up a little bit. So a lot of it seems to depend on the entity itself and how determined and strong it is and the people involved. If, uh, if the victims are persons who have natural openings to the paranormal, and some people are like that from birth, wherever they go, uh, if there's something that uh, is interested in them, it will start acting up. Those people seem to have the most problems. Uh, other people um, find that they can put up some barriers, they can cope, they can at least push it out of their own immediate sphere to a point where they can... 
um, they can get along. Some of these entities that I've tried to communicate with have indicated they're not interested in any sort of coexistence or cooperation. They just want people to go away. So we don't have any real good solutions right now. We have a lot of problems, and um, we're just now finding our way through what I think is going to be an increasing situation. Not to be a sort of trite or... We live in a a co-shared universe. Not to be trite or cliche about it, but it does remind me of sort of the, you know, the final moments of uh, of, uh, Ghostbusters when... Uh, when the you know these spiritual attacks and and, and 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 hauntings were intensifying, it almost became sort of apocalyptic. And I'm I'm wondering whether you see any parallels in sort of the the evangelical Christian uh, sort of warnings of the gates of hell opening up. It, it's it, it does sound like that's what's happening. I have certainly heard comments like that, and yes, some of them do come from the um, conservative religious community. Uh, who uh, contend that uh, people's um, playing around in the occult and uh, trying to contact spirits is only encouraging greater openings between us and what they say are the gates of hell and uh, the realm of the demons. And then I've talked to other investigators, especially about the jinn, who uh, are very concerned about these portals, these openings between dimensions. I recently had uh, some consultations with a Sunni Muslim in England who's been tracking the jinn for a long time, and we were comparing cases. And uh, he said that he was working with other investigators uh, who all were of the opinion that, well, what we're seeing now may seem like a big increase to us, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. And there may be some sort of apocalyptic day in the future where the interdimensional gates uh, just simply uh, come wide, wide open. They just fall, all the barriers just fall apart, and the entities are able to uh, stream through in uh, 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 thousands instead of singly and in small groups. All right, well, folks, batten down the hatches. You heard it. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. Uh, the website is visionaryliving.com. And uh, check out her bookstore. She's got uh, a whole library she's written. And, uh, you know, in these times, it's, it's best to be, uh, to be prepared and informed. And Rosemary's books uh, can certainly help you get there. W- what's next, Rosemary? What are you working on? I'm just finishing my book on the Ouija board. And uh, that's another thing that's getting a lot of attention these days, whether or not the Ouija board is an... <coughs> Oh, excuse me. I'll start that over again. I'm just finishing my book on the Ouija board uh, and um, making a case for it uh, it being really a neutral tool that gets misused a lot. Uh, Some people feel that it's the instrument of evil, automatically invites demonic activity and possession. Uh, The board actually does have a very strange history to it. And uh, some of the cases that are included in the book are uh, quite chilling in terms of uh, people who start out wanting to have some innocent entertainment and fun and wind up having major spirit problems. Well, I look forward to uh, your completing that book, receiving my, my copy, and doing a, uh, we'll do a full show on that. Absolutely. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Thanks as always. Stay safe. Thank you, Richard. All right, stay safe. We'll uh, take a time out when we come back. Open lines on The Conspiracy Show. You, me, and the telephone. 
The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Open lines now until the top of the hour. A a, a reasonably rare opportunity for you to... Uh, basically, program the uh, the program, <laughs> program the program. That's right, folks. And so, if you'd like to talk about uh, an encounter, uh, just uh, after we heard from Rosemary Ellen Guiley, if you have a uh, uh, perhaps have had an encounter with uh, an entity that has fought back, I would uh, I'd like very much to hear about that. And uh, Rosemary also mentioned her upcoming work, or her upcoming book about uh, Ouija boards. This is an area that fascinates me. Uh, I I don't recall ever actually dabbling with a Ouija board. I, I seem to recall we had one around the house, and even then, at the tender age of 11 or 12, I, uh, I felt it was important to stay away. I couldn't really tell why, uh, but it, it confounds me uh, why these Ouija boards are so popular, and even more to the point, why they are being sold in toy stores and marketed towards children. Uh, it, it's, it's utterly bizarre. Uh, they, they are dangerous. So if you've had a, uh, an encounter with a, a Ouija board, would love to hear about that as well. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. That's the phone number to call in the greater Toronto area. And uh, toll-free from just about anywhere else, one 866-740-4740. Of course, we don't have to just talk about the paranormal or UFOs. Uh, we can also talk about conspiracies, cover-ups, political subterfuge, geopolitics. Lord knows there's a lot going on in the world and much to discuss. Let's begin with uh, Hel- uh, Elena in Richmond Hill. Is it Elena? Yes, hello. Hi there. Hi. Um, your show is my worst nightmare. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry. I don't mean it to be, Helena. It's frightening because um, I don't believe a word that's been said on the show. Um, um, it, it, it seems so unreal to me, anyway. Well, can you be a little um, more I'm specific? I'm very uneducated. I don't have facts and figures. Um, I'm an artist and a poet, mm-hmm. and I live in a fantasy world, and I'm very naive and very gullible, and um, the things that you suggest on your show really disturb me tremendously. Now, I want to know, I have a question for you. All right. I want to know if, uh, if a person is thinking something, and he can, can they transfer, transfer their thoughts into your mind, into my mind? Well, you're talking about uh, like telepathy. telepathy. There, well, there's a school of thought that that, that's, that, that uh, maintains that that's possible. Why do you ask, Helena? Because when I look back at what I've done over the past years, uh, I can't believe that I've done it because it's so good. You mean some of the things that you've written? Some of the things I've written, the poems, yes. And they just and sort the of writing. they just sort of because came in to school, you. You know, in school, mm. I I didn't understand the English language. I didn't understand grammar. I didn't understand what the hell the teacher was talking about. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't concentrate. 
I've, I've lived in a fantasy world. Mm. Well, you know what I do. And what's interesting is when you talk to or when you listen to interviews with some of the great uh, uh, songwriters, for example, and I, I seem to recall uh, Bob Dylan and and, oh, yes, and, Bob Dylan, yes. and Pop, Paul McCartney saying this. In some of their greatest songs, came to them. Uh, and they 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 literally wrote them down in 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 mere minutes. They they were at a in, a in a restaurant on the back of a napkin on the back of an envelope, and they said, you know, they they spent the rest of their career. They could never write anything like that again. It just came well, to like them. I'm like that too. Mm. I'm like that too. I, you see, I'm very spontaneous. I'm like a child. I've never grown up. I'm like a child, and everything I do is very spontaneous, and I can't repeat what I've done. Every t- every day is a different ball game. Every day mm-hmm. is a different game for me. Well, there's a school know? of thought that we are, uh, in 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 one sense, we are receivers. We are almost like a radio antenna, uh, and for uh, and more so for those people, perhaps like yourself, Elena, who are particularly gifted, uh, and and that you are able to uh, to receive. Uh, this this knowledge, this information, uh, these uh, these uh, these verses from out there in the ether, uh, whether you call it your, whether you're tapping into the collective uh, the collective unconscious, whether you're, you're you're tapping into what some call the the akashic record, uh, I really don't know, Elena. But um, it's interesting. You started off this conversation by saying you don't believe anything you hear on this program, and yet to me it sounds like you're saying that you're certainly open to much of what you hear on this program. I'm open. I'm open to it mm-hmm. because it's not logical. Because I'm not at all logical. I have no reasoning. I have no logic. Because the first guest you had on the program didn't make any sense to me at all. Didn't he make any a sense. Lot of rubbish, as far as I'm concerned. Well, because because you know, I have no sense of history, no sense of biology, no sense of science, no sense of math. All I know, all I know, is painting and poetry. And art and drama, drama, right? Drama. I got it, Elena. Elena, uh, I thank you for the call. I, I guess I would just end it by saying this: um, maybe it, the reason it sounds like rubbish and much of what you hear sounds like rubbish is because it's you're hearing it for the first time. Um, but uh, it does make a great deal of sense. I mean, to me, anyway. Frank Joseph, for example, uh, if you if you look at this book, it's documented. It's it's detailed, uh, photographic evidence. Um, eyewitness testimony. Uh, he's presenting facts. Now, what do we do with those facts? Uh, well, uh, if they don't fit the the narrative, I guess then we just ignore them uh, because they are a threat. Uh, but if we are willing to look beyond orthodoxy, then I think they make a great deal of sense. But you have to be willing to take that step. That's the key. You have to be willing to open up your mind to the possibilities. Uh, Thank you for the call. Uh, Let's say hello to Gail in Toronto. Gail, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. Um, Yeah, um, I was fascinated by, um, by, what's his name, Frank Joseph? Frank Joseph, yes. Yeah, yeah, he was fascinating. Um, Anyway, I wanted to talk about um, uh, what uh, Rosemary Allen, Ellen Galley was talking about. Yes, yes. Entities. And, and it's something that I've kind of thought. Um, you know, um, they talk about alien abductions. You know, they say alien, the aliens abduct you and mm-hmm. do things and take you off somewhere. 
Well, this happened in the medieval times, only they didn't say they were aliens. They said they were fairies or elves. Or, That's quite true. And they took them off to some place and they had to stay there for a while and then they were brought back. And um, I think it's all one and the same. I think you may be onto something. And Rosemary, uh, in, in previous uh, conversations, have said, has said the exact same thing. She believes that uh, that the one entity which may be the common denominator in many paranormal phenomena, is the jinn, uh, which we call here in the West genies, uh, these interdimensional uh, entities that uh, seem to, um, well, they don't suffer humans very well. No. Uh, and, and so she, you know, she's looking at the jinn as being the culprit, and, 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 you, and you know, there may be something to that. I've long suspected... Uh, after years of sort of covering the the UFO ET alien abduction phenomena, that they are not extraterrestrial, that they yeah. are interdimensional. And I if think so too. Yes. I, I really believe that because I think I think the medieval um, people um, they talked about them as you know as what they knew about them. So we talk about them as aliens and extra ETs and things like that. But they talk about them as fairies and elves and and leprechauns and things like that. It's, just, it's one and the same, I think. I agree with you, Gail. Yeah. And I thank you for the call. Okay. Bye, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye. bye uh, let us check in next with uh, Jeff in South Haven, Michigan. Michigan checking in uh, this morning here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Hey, Jeff, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you, Mr. Sirrett, for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, back in the 90s, I was experimenting with Ouija boards uh, you know, just to check them out to see if there was anything to them. And uh, I combined them with what I call magic ritual. I was reading uh, books by guys like Aleister Crowley, mm. the, you know, uh, things like The Golden Dawn. Yes. These ma- so I you were playing with fire, my friend. Oh, you know, uh, the, you know I've heard all this before, but I, I look at it this way, Mr. Sirrett. Since the nations have designed uh, nuclear weapons, I really don't care. It, to me, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the power to be able to completely burn out a city. You know, I mean, maybe, I mean, but let's find out. I mean, science is science. And I've always had a great, great, uh, what do you call it, uh, appreciation for, you know, knowledge of any kind. And truth is truth. I mean, if there's nothing to it, then let's find out. And if there is something to it, well, you know, let's find out. Well, well but, fair enough, but, but, but at what cost, Jeff? I mean, you, you're putting yourself out there uh, and potentially at, at, at tremendous risk. You know, uh, I, I've always looked at it this way. I, when you deal with people in business or in life, you know, you should be upfront and honest. I've mm-hmm. always been honest. So I figured, well, if these, you know, so-called, if there are these entities in this, just be honest with them. Take what comes and, you know, just, you know, just be that way. Otherwise, you, how can you progress? How can you find out for sure? Well, Mr. Serrett, I'm here to tell you, and I've, you know, the witnesses that I have, oh, my God, they're so scared. They, they just, you know, it's just unbelievable. But we've actually been able to, by working aboard in a group, have been able to levitate not only tables but the Ouija boards, and the uh, planchettes or whatever, all simultaneously at the same time. Now, I'm intrigued by that. To me, there's a science behind that. And, you know, I've heard all these UFO reporters and guys like this talking about anti-gravity and things like this. Well, we've achieved it. 
I don't know how. I mean, I'm not saying we did, but we were able to emulate those results. Now, there's got to be a physics or a science behind that. And, boy, I'm, tr- I'm trying my darndest to try to figure this out because I'm not a physicist. <laughs> but I really would like to be able to unlock that and figure out what makes them float. Jeff, have you videotaped any of these sessions? Well, you know, I, I work on a real budget, and it's, <laughs> there's just no way. And I've, I've often talked about that. I can't find anyone who's got the gut to stand there and videotape it while I'm, because I can't do it at the same time unless it's all automatic. I don't have that kind of equipment. But I've also been knocked for that, and I have this to say. All the, you know, I've seen all these UFO pictures and stuff like this, and everybody said they can be doctored or fixed. It. So, you know, videotapes mean nothing to me. I think the only way you can do it is in a scientific setting with full witnesses, wide open, and, you know, right there for everybody to see. To me, you know, with controls, with scientific controls, so people know that, hey, this is for real. That's the only way it can be done. It's like anything else in science. I learned that in high school. Sure, absolutely. You're right. Videotape can be doctored, and it is. uh, I mean, we're coming to a time when photographic evidence and video evidence, I think, will be inadmissible in court. Well, you know, just imagine. You turn on YouTube now. If you saw a bunch of people standing around a a table levitating in the air with a Ouija board spinning around above it and then a, you know, a planchet or a shot glass or something above that bouncing around, you, you know, you would say, oh, yeah, this has been doctored. You know, I mean, let's be honest, you know. Right. Absolutely. Aside from the levitation, Jeff, any messages coming through? Oh, lots of threats. You know, I'm going to kill you, this kind of stuff. You're going to die. You know, you're, you're, uh, you're uh, treading on, you know, in areas you, you, you have no right to tread in, stuff like this. And so it sounds like you're holding fairly, uh, fairly frequent, these sessions fairly frequently. Is oh, that no, correct? no, no, here's the thing. I, you know, once people witness this, you have to get a whole new crowd because it just, it, they don't know how to handle it. It, it. it breaks their paradigm. It destroys everything. Some people be, actually will call me like the son of the devil or stuff like this or say that I'm, you know, completely possessed or, de- you know, it's stuff like this kind of stuff. Uh, it's very hard to get people with a pure scientific bent who want to investigate it and break it down, you know, to the elements to uh, find out how it works. After, after you have these Ouija board sessions and, and the, these things levitate and you get these uh, nasty, nasty threats from, well, wherever they're coming from, the other side, if you wish. What, any other residual effects in the house? Uh, for example, uh, do you, uh, are there I any... Have a, I have a, a, a humorous story to tell about that. Um, I lived in a, ca- a trailer home out, out in the uh, woods up here uh, in um, a woodland area of uh, Van Buren County in Michigan. And uh, I heard, foot- after uh, holding one of these sessions, I heard footsteps on my ceiling. Big footfall from one end to the other, one end to the other, one end to the other. I'd get up, and it would stop. So I'd go back to sleep, and I would hear these footsteps. Back, 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 back. And uh, I just said, oh, man, don't tell me they're, they're coming from here. So, you know, I started to say, oh, come on, this is ridiculous. Finally, I, I, I sat by the door of my trailer, and I said, if I hear these footsteps, i got to get out there and see what this is. Because every time I went out, I couldn't see anything. I had a nightlight, you know, above the trailer. Well, I heard him again, jumped out of the trailer, went out there, and what was standing on top of my trailer was like about a three-foot-tall great horned owl. Ah, wow. Was that cool? It was, I mean, it didn't do anything, but it was just under the nightlight, I guess, because the nightlight kind of lit up things for it or that. Sure, sure. But, I mean, you know, to me, that was, 
rather humorous, you know. I know, okay, well. And, you know, like after that, it, it really never did it again. So, now, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, now some of my some of my friends would say, well, the bird was probably possessed. Right, you know, right. I mean, come on. Give me Final a question, Jeff. Sure. And that is, so what do you think is, is, is going on? Uh, I know you're trying to approach this scientifically, but speculate a little bit. What do you think is making these tables and, and uh, the planchette and the Ouija board, uh, you know, rise up off the ground? Uh, I don't think we have a... Uh, a solid handle on all the um, way that the energies work in our universe yet. I think when we finally f- uh, start getting uh, more information, we'll find out that, like the electromagnetic spectrum, the magnetic spectrum, and this, uh, that these things, uh, like uh, that Mary Ellen Guiley was saying, they probably operate uh, in different, uh, different levels, uh, through interdimensionally, on different levels. And you'll probably find out that the uh, physics. There must be something that ties them together and unifies them, like Einstein was saying, but we just aren't there yet. Hey, Jeff, listen, I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you'll call again sometime. Well, thank you. Jeff in South Haven, Michigan, checking in, uh, conducting scientific uh, investigations, I guess, into uh, the Ouija board phenomena. Well, good luck to him, and uh, stay safe, take precautions. Uh, David is in Brampton this morning. Good morning, David. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm great. I'm so surprised I'm on your show. I really love it. Welcome aboard. Thanks. Um, I missed the first half or first half of your show, so I'll listen to it on the podcast. But it sounds like it was really interesting. Frank Joseph is always full value, and thank you for reminding me. I don't plug the podcasts nearly enough, but uh, for those of you uh, who don't get a chance to listen to the whole show, or you fall asleep uh, halfway through, or whatever, because God knows it's a, it's, it's a late uh, late show, uh, you can subscribe for free to the Conspiracy Show on iTunes. And uh, once you subscribe, I believe uh, it just it just pops up on your desktop or wherever you decide to save it. Uh, every week, there's the new one, and uh, listen to it at your leisure. I get emails from uh, all over the world. Uh, an, an artist emailed me uh, the other day from New York City. He he listens to the podcast while he's in his loft painting, and a, a, a postman in uh, the outback in Australia who listens while he's delivering the mail by moped. So, uh, yes, thank you for reminding me. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. Okay, David, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. Plug the podcast all you want. Um, I listen to it on the website, Zuma Radio. Excellent. Um, I was watching Sister Wives, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the Lyme disease, uh, episode you had a couple of weeks ago. Yes, yes. Okay, so you had a very scientific-focused episode, but, um, I was, well, I, I had heard that Eric Traub, which was this German veterinarian scientist, um, he actually came from Germany over to the United States, and he was doing some government work for the U.S. government uh, at Plum Island. Yes. And they were doing a lot of biomedical research, mm. and uh, they were testing Lyme disease out of one of, like, one of these diseases that they were testing, like foot and mouth disease, um, but as well as Lyme disease. And like, I guess there must have been an outbreak because there's been a huge spike in people who have Lyme disease in that area. So I was just wondering if Well, you that's got... where it gets its name, I believe, is from, is it Lyme, Connecticut or something, right across the, from Plum Island? Right, it's because of that area where yes. they see most of the of Lyme disease happening, but I don't know if you think it's, like, government-created or... Well, the question is, uh, it, it, was it accidental? Was it intentional? Uh, I mean, these ticks, I mean, it's a tick-borne virus and, uh, or a tick-borne vector. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been around, obviously, uh, for millions of years. In fact, they've been found in, in fossil remains. Uh, with this particular one, 
uh, you know, has some some sort of out on the fringe in this area speculated that it's been weaponized. Hard to say, but what's interesting is, and and um, the, the episode you you mentioned, I was 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 speaking with uh, medical journalist Helka Ferry, who who is uh, the owner of uh, Cost Publishing, and uh, she's a contributor to Vitality Magazine. She told me uh, on an earlier um, uh, show that she once wrote to the Minister of Health here in Canada, who at the time I believe was, uh, was Tony Clement, asking, f- doing research, asking for data, asking for details about how many people in Canada uh, had contracted Lyme disease and so forth. And she was told, she says, uh, either by the minister himself or a, or a parliamentary secretary, that they couldn't reveal that information it was essentially a question of national security. Wow. Now, what does that tell you? I'm not sure, but that sounds very odd to me. Especially if it's in the interest of public health, like why wouldn't they release that information? But then it sounds like the Canadian government is in cahoots with the U.S. government to try and, like, weaponize this, this disease, which is horrible. Not is sure. It- I don't know what that means. Even Helke couldn't answer that question, but... Uh, yeah, I, I want to do more programs on, on Lyme disease, especially as we head on into that season, spring and summer. It's very important. And as the World Health Organization now has said, it's like one of the worst infectious diseases. It's sweeping, it's sweeping the, uh, the, the planet. And here in Canada, we, we, uh, we seem to have our blinders on, at least uh, public health and, uh, and the government. So we'll keep our... Uh, well, we'll to keep me, on. that's very odd, because I work in pharmaceutical regulatory affairs, and basically you can request a lot of information from Health Canada um, based on freedom of information. So, I don't know, it just doesn't add up there. Well, yes, you can you can request it. Uh, they can uh, they can deny it if they if, if they feel it's an issue of national security, or they can they can comply and basically send back heavily redacted documents that aren't worth anything because everything all the particulars are blacked out. Oh, Listen, those are fun to read, <laughs> or not, David. Welcome, uh, or uh, thank you for the call, and uh, glad to have you aboard. Let's say hello to. I think I have time for one more quick call. Uh, Tony is in. Is it Mississauga? Yes, it is. Hey, good morning, Tony. Welcome. Uh, yes, thank you, Richard. Uh, I want to talk about the uh, dangers of messing around with Ouija boards. We've got about three minutes, so uh, oh, give, give okay. it your best shot, Tony. I was in the Vietnam War and, and uh, over in Thailand in, in 67, and uh, for entertainment, we go down to the strip at nights, and uh, the ladies of the night had numbers and everything else, and... Uh, uh, there was this one particular one I frequented. It was her name was Doy One Sixty One. All right. Okay. Got back uh, home. Went home on leave and visited my family. And uh, we were at my aunt's place, and she brought out the Ouija board, and I thought it was nonsense. Well, uh, it went to no, and then I. And then one six one, and, and I was dumbfounded. But the moral of the story is, uh, a few years later, I, I began my long journey into mental illness. You began your journey into which? Mental illness. Oh dear. And you you attribute that to the Ouija board? Uh, yes, they're they're familiar spirits. Do not mess around with them. All right. Well, there's a cautionary tale. Tony, listen, uh, I appreciate the call. I hope you'll call again. Okay. Thank you for that.
There you go, folks. Well, we'll uh, we'll check in with Rosemary Ellen Guiley when she's. Uh, we may not even wait till she's finished that book uh, on Ouija boards. We'll we'll do a complete show and uh, take more calls. Tony, I wish we had more time for you, but thank you and uh, uh, all the best with dealing with your uh, particular demons. Thank you to Frank Joseph, The Lost Worlds of Ancient America, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of, call, uh, of course, and uh, for all of you for calling in, David Gaskin for technical production. Back next week, John Rappaport. This was a guy that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He's been covering uh, the alternative... Uh, uh, well, writing for the alternative media and uh, covering the medical cartel uh, for plus uh, 30 plus years, he has just released um, a uh, an incredible media pa- package. Really, it's it's enormous in scope and size. 250 megabytes of information, 1,100 pages of text, two and a, ten and a half hours of audio. Many of them extraordinary interviews. It's called The Matrix Revealed. It's about the medical cartel. It's about brainwashing. Uh, it's uh, on a whole lot more. John Rappaport will join us for the full two hours next week. Hope you'll be along for that crazy wild ride. And in the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Happy Mother's Day. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.